Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, mulling over James' admonition about the kinds of things we do without thinking, I was reading this week about how the mind works. Not because I'm losing mine yet, at least not that I know of, but because I'd like to keep what I've got for as long as I can. And one of the ways you can do that, like so many other body parts, is to use it, exercise it, challenge it. And suddenly it occurred to me that there might be an undiscovered market out there for brain gyms. Sort of like the hot and sweaty kind people are in love with today, except in my gym you just walk in, grab a cappuccino, and sit down to work a crossword puzzle. Or maybe read a book. Or work your way through a, a book of brain teasers. Think anybody pay $20 a month for that? Before you say no, you could, remember you could still tell your friends that you just got back from the gym. And you'd have a membership card to prove it. You just wouldn't want to elaborate. I wonder... Let's try it out, because if you stretch your minds a little this morning, you're going to be able to see how this leads right into our lessons today. Put on your thinking caps. If it takes six men one hour to dig six holes, how long does it take one man to dig half a hole? Now, if you're watching this at home or uh, online, you can push the pause button, give yourself a little more time. But if you're not then you can poke me all you want, and I'm going to just keep right on talking. The answer is, there's no such thing as half a hole. Ha! Gotcha. One more. Jack tells Jill, this isn't the $5 bill you left on the table. I found it between pages 15 and 16 of Harry Potter. Jill snaps back, you're lying, and I can prove it. How did Jill know? Well, Harry Potter, like every other book, it has odd-numbered pages on the right. Therefore, pages 15 and 16 would be on uh, the opposite sides of the same page. There's no way anything could be put between them. Try that one out in your fifth grader. You're going to definitely feel smarter. Well, that's enough exercise for today. Those are from a kid's book of brain teasers, by the way. Uh, makes your head sweat, though, right? In our gospel lesson this morning, Jesus and his disciples are walking through Galilee on their way to Capernaum, their home base at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. He just revealed to them that he was going to be killed and after three days rise from the dead. I mean, this is like big news, right? Matthew says they were greatly distressed. Mark says that they didn't understand him and were afraid to ask. And Luke says that they didn't understand it and it was concealed from them. Now, they may have been afraid to ask Jesus about it, but you'd think they must have talked about it a little bit with each other while they were walking, wouldn't you? Even if it was just in whispers, they must have talked. It was a huge revelation. But as far as we know, they didn't. When they got back home, Jesus asked them what they'd been talking about, and if you just hadn't heard it read yourself, you'd never guess. It wasn't what you might have thought. In fact, they were so embarrassed that they clammed up. But Jesus knew. He didn't miss anything. Still doesn't, by the way. They were wondering how he was going. They weren't wondering how he was going to pull off something like coming back from the dead. They weren't wondering um, uh, whether or not somebody could manage to kill him, especially after all the, the, you know, miracles that they'd seen him work. No, they've been arguing about who among them was the greatest, and not for the first time. Now, these were the guys that Jesus was was going to turn the future of the newborn Christian church over to in just a short while. 
The good news was that it gave Jesus an opportunity to talk with them about how Christians should treat each other. Now, they weren't rookies by this time. They knew Jesus had come to usher in a new kingdom, uh, but they were still thinking in terms of a, a new kingdom on earth. That's where their minds were, on earthly things. It's almost like they were thinking with half a brain, right? And maybe they couldn't help it. You've probably heard it said that we only use 10% of our brains, right? Movies are based on it, so it must be true. Uh, in the 2000 film Limitless, a struggling writer takes a, a secret experimental drug that allows him to use 100% of his mind, and he becomes a financial wizard. Everything he's ever heard, read, or seen is instantly organized and available. Well, everybody isn't happy with that, and so he's marked for assassination. In the 2014 film Lucy, a woman is exposed to a secret drug that not only enhances her brain capacity, it develops her physical and, and mental capabilities as well, and then, of course, chaos ensues. The tagline of the film read, the average person uses 10% of their brain capacity. Imagine what she could do with 100%. Hmm. The idea, of course, is that if you could somehow unlock that other 90% of our brain capacity, we could all become, well, superhuman. Maybe even superheroes. Just not bulletproof. The good news is that it's fun to think about. The bad news is that it's just a myth, thought to have first been put out there by a psychologist in the early part of the 20th century. Since that time, though, with the development of things like uh, MRIs and PET scans, we know that just simply being alive, simply living, we're using all of our brain most of the time. Synapses are firing all over the place. It's why an injury to one small part of the brain can cause such big problems. Now, even if the disciples weren't thinking with their whole brain that day with Jesus, it was a lesson that they must have learned and passed on because it's what James is talking about this morning, and it's important. This James, the letter's author, uh, was likely the half-brother of Jesus. He wasn't part of the 12 disciples. He wasn't even a believer in Jesus' deity until uh, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, one of which was to, to him. His leadership skills allowed him to rise in authority as, until he became seen as the head of the Christian church in Jerusalem. Now, he's writing to the scattered Christian church. This time, it was probably made up of mostly Jewish converts who were growing in their faith. Might have been written before the great influx of Gentiles into the church uh, that began in Acts 11. That's where, where Peter reports his vision that God had sent his son to save all people, that there was no more distinction between clean and unclean, between Jew and Gentile. Uh, all believers were children of God, part of the body of Christ. Uh, James never made missionary journeys beyond Jerusalem to plant churches like Paul did, which at this time were still called synagogues. But but he was receiving word about their struggles. Now, Martin Luther wasn't James' biggest fan because he, he uh, thought James was a little too heavy in his use of the law to instruct. Uh, James doesn't hesitate to deal with these maturing believers, moral and spiritual struggles head on. But sometimes that's what people need to wake them up, isn't it? And while it may sting for a moment or a couple moments to hear it, we're usually thankful afterwards, especially if it turns us around heads us back toward God. He's reminding them, and of course us, that even though our brain might be in pretty good working order, we're still going to make dumb mistakes. We can be double-minded. He talks about wisdom that is from above and wisdom that you might say is earthbound. 
And the difference between the two was already causing problems among believers. Earlier in this letter, he was talking about a phony faith. Now he's talking about a phony wisdom. Apparently what he was seeing and, and hearing from the scattered Christian congregations wasn't good. Some people were setting themselves up as wise and learned teachers. And maybe they did know a lot about the scriptures, but it was obvious to James that they didn't know a lot about God. They were claiming to possess wisdom from above, but what they were displaying was the fruits of wisdom from below. If you were really wise and understanding, James says, then your life would show it in the humility that comes from true wisdom. You know, what he was hearing was snippets about empty wisdom that only leads to bitterness, uh, envy, and selfish ambition. That kind of wisdom isn't heaven sent. It's earthbound, not from God, from Satan, not from the spirit, but unspiritual. In person, and especially uh, if a person or especially a teacher or a leader is truly wise, it'll show in good deeds, of course, but also in humility. You know, bitter, uh, envious, selfish, ambitious leaders will only grow a crop of bitter, envious, selfish, ambitious students. That only leads to disorder and evil. James is making a distinction between the two. In the paraphrased Bible, the, the uh, message, uh, one that's written like a novel, uh, author Eugene Peterson uh, puts James' word, words in another way. Uh, it's the way you live, writes James, not the way you talk that counts. Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting at your wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning, devilish conniving. Whenever you're trying to look better than others and, or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and it's characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoy its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. He's saying that, that earthly or, or worldly wisdom is anything but wisdom. It's more like animal cunning, he says, or devilish conniving. Our ESV text that says that wisdom that doesn't come down from above is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. But we still live in the world, don't we? We still make our livings in the world. And so we have to remember that without God's help, without looking up, we'll become just like the world. And God's plan is to make us more like him. On the day the disciples learned this lesson from Jesus, they'd been really caught arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat them down to, and he said, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he brought a little child in. He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. Now, children weren't very highly valued in that culture. And yet Jesus uses one for an important object lesson about heavenly wisdom. When people receive a little child, he says, they're receiving him. And when they receive him, they're receiving the Father. That's about as far away from earthly wisdom as you could get. It was directly opposed to the disciples' ambitions. Now, James, he heard that lesson from them. He never forgot it. He says, do you, know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he lists examples about just how far away from God they've been living. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. It can also be translated hate sometimes in the Bible. Um, so if you desire and do not have, uh, you could hate. Uh, you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel, you adulterous people. Now, he could be talking about adultery in the sense of all the sexual sins connected with the sixth commandment. But God made us his bride through faith in Christ. And so rejecting him for, for the world's ways is also adultery. These are Christians he's writing to, people who have already experienced the grace of God in their lives. And yet what we're hearing from James is that, that Christians don't automatically tap into the kind of wisdom that God offers believers. He's lamenting that, that the other kind of wisdom, worldly wisdom, uh, often ends up taking precedence, even in a community of faith. You get the same sense, or you get the sense, I guess, as you read this or hear this, that we're kind of walking a fine line. So how do we know we've crossed that line and sold out to the world? Well, the easy answer is that it happens anytime we allow the world to take first place over God. Uh, when we take a pass on an opportunity to serve others in kingdom work. When we allow our mouths to get out of control and forget that a problem like that can often lead straight back to the heart. Fighting and quarreling and selfishness and, and bitterness, those things have no place in the church, no place among the brothers and sisters of Christ. In the Old Testament, God is continually complaining about the adulterous Israelites who left him to chase after idols and the false gods of all the pagan nations around them. Martin Luther once called the human heart an idol factory. Those first century believers who were going to be reading James' letter as it gets circulated around the church weren't chasing after Baal and Asherah anymore like their, their ancestors 1,400 years before. But Satan had arranged that there would be plenty of new idols to take their place. That doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't have friends or nice things in their lives. It does mean that loving evil things or even loving good things more than God puts you directly in, the, uh, in opposition to our loving God who allowed his own son to become a sacrifice for all your sins. You know, living our faith is a continual process of growth. Continual. It's a spiritual process. The church word for it is sanctification. It comes from a Latin word that means holy. At your baptism, or whenever it might have been that God first brought you to faith, God's Holy Spirit became a part of your life. He's with you now to encourage you, to give you the strength to get up each morning and face life's battles, to impart that wisdom from above. It's part of what living in God's grace is all about. It's a continual striving to be more, more Christ-like in everything we say and do. It might show up in your life as a dissatisfaction with where you are, where you're headed. You know, maybe you're not finding stimulation in your career. Your drive has gone cold, and maybe it's time to pray about that and then listen for that still, small voice of God. It may encourage you or it may begin leading you in an entirely new direction. Life directed from, by wisdom from above isn't going to always be easy. Sometimes it'll feel like a tug of war, like you're pulled upward toward heavenly things and pulled downward toward earthly things at the same time. You, you begin to feel like a stretched rope. Sometimes it'll feel like you're taking two steps forward and one step back. But the net result is still one step forward, so don't be discouraged. God will celebrate each little success with you. 
And he'll forgive every failure because now you're part of his family. And you continually receive the benefits of Christ's atoning sacrifice for you on the cross. The unconditional forgiveness of all your sins and a, a, a fresh new start. C.S. Lewis talked about this indwelling spirit using the example of a house. And it's a pretty good one. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks, leaks in the roof and so on. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from what you might have thought of, throwing out a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come live in it himself. You and I might say that he's building one fit for him. You know, true wisdom, uh, that power from above, yields a, a life of righteousness, James says. In other words, you can talk all you want about being wise or smart or powerful, but unless your life is a living witness, full of mercy and good fruits, you haven't tapped into his power and your walk is a sham. Worldly wisdom chases after power and ambition, but when worldly wisdom lets you down, and it will, you know, try looking up. You have access to the greatest power in the universe. You have access to the power that created the universe. All the help you need, maybe not to change everything in the world like in ways that you'd like, but more than enough to change yours and to make you wise in ways that, that the world may never understand. You know, wise for eternity. Amen. And I made that very special peace of God that passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. I will take a moment now to...